Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with British Columbia's healthcare system. Feeling the stresses and strains here of demands on the system. We've talked a lot about this on the show recently. The long wait times for surgery, the wait times for cancer screening and testing and cancer care. We've had some amazing stories on the show for people who have been on surgical waiting lists and often waiting in pain. And then some of them saying, to hell with this. I'm leaving the province. I'm going to pay for my surgery out of my own pocket. Now, I got Dr. Bernard Ho standing by, Canadian Doctors for Medicare, to discuss. Have a listen to Victoria resident Tracy Porteous, and she's been a guest on the show. She went to Calgary for her hip replacement surgery. She paid for it herself. Have a listen. So it's a small clinic with two very state-of-the-art operating rooms. And so there were eight of us that came up that day, and half of us were from British Columbia. Half of the people there were from British Columbia at this private clinic in Calgary. And we've heard from other listeners, we've heard from listeners this week who have also been to that same private clinic. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. Bernard Ho. Bernard is with Canadian Doctors for Medicare. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Bernard, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me again. Yeah, you bet. And I'll tell you, Bernard, when we had Tracy Porteous on the show here a little while ago, it got a big listener reaction. And there's, again, divided reaction. Some people think, okay, you're paying for private surgery. That shows we got two-tier medicine here. Others are saying, hang on, she was in pain. She was waiting in pain for surgery. And why shouldn't she be able to pay for it herself? To relieve her suffering. What, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So several thoughts. I mean, I think, firstly, all of us across this spectrum of this discussion can agree that the status quo isn't working in it. And we've heard that time and time again, and that we need change. And I also don't fault any one individual or, or patient who wants to travel and can pay out of pocket for, for a joint replacement, for a hip and knee replacement, if they can afford it. But as we heard from your guest, uh, a price tag of $28,000 is is steep and with with the cost of housing and rent and and groceries and gas rising do we really want to add healthcare to that list and so when we we talk about these for-profit private clinics we need to ask ourselves three questions firstly are they more effective and more cost effective than the public system do they actually reduce wait times overall and are patient outcomes better than the public system And if you look at the actual data, you'll find that the answer to all of these questions is no. And so proponents of these for-profit clinics will say that the public system is failing 
Um, but to me, that that's a disingenuous statement because we've been underfunding the public system for decades now, and we haven't even come close to, to utilizing the public system to its fullest extent and its fullest potential. Yeah. You know, there are so many opportunities for innovation within the public system where we can have good wait times, good health outcomes without patients having to pay $30,000 out of pocket. And we're glossing over all of that to go straight towards these for-profit clinics. Well, let's have another little listen to her here because her story is very compelling because one of the things that was happening to her was she was in so much pain while she waited for this hip replacement that her doctor prescribed quite powerful opioid painkillers and she was worried she was going to get addicted to these painkillers that's one of the reasons why she decided to take out a a second mortgage on her house to pay for this hip replacement in calgary let's have a listen to what she had to say here i'll get your thoughts tracy porteous here i was on holidays on salt spring and suddenly i could not walk down the driveway even four steps i felt such a relief when i made the decision to go to calgary knowing that this kind of opioid haze and pain that I was in was going to stop. Okay. And now I've heard an argument, Bernard, and I know you've heard this as well, that when someone does this, if they pay, they pay out of their own pocket for their surgery, does that actually reduce the strain on the system? Because she's no longer waiting for care in the public system. So the person behind her in line moves up one spot. What do you think of that logic? Like if you let people pay for their health care privately, it actually would help the, the public waiting lists. Yeah, I'd say that that's a false statement because the, yeah. the physician, the surgeon who's doing that surgery and the, the nurses and everyone in that operating room are people who could be working in the public system. And so we have a finite resources of physicians and other healthcare professionals. And so when we take those resources out of the public system, into the private system, we're reducing those resources within our public healthcare system and worsening the crisis that we're currently facing. And so, again, I, I empathize with any patient who who's in chronic pain, who can't walk because of their their hip and knee issues. And you know, I, I work in the emergency department, so I see this all the time: patients coming in with, with debilitating pain who who need pain medications until they can get their surgery. I, I empathize with that hundred percent. But we can have a public system that functions for us where we don't have to travel out of the province and pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a a, you know, a necessary uh, surgery that will drastically improve a patient's quality of life. Yeah. And again, when we look at the data for for wait times, we actually see that. So, for example, BC, Alberta, Quebec, these are the provinces that have the most number of for-profit clinics. Now, when we look at the data from 2021 to 2022 at the, the hip and knee replacement surgeries, these provinces, uh, the the percentage of patients who receive the, the their hip and knee replacements within six months are actually lower than provinces like Ontario that don't have the same number of for-profit clinics. And so... What? <clears throat> okay, okay, that's very interesting. Let me ask you what's going... What do you think about what's going on in Alberta? Because I find it intriguing that we, we've got a government here in British Columbia that has taken some action against private clinics. And in Alberta, it sounds like they're talking about expanding private options. Do you have concerns there? What's happening there? For sure. The, the same concerns that, that we've been discussing throughout all of these these segments. The, the issue with the four private clinics are, are... There are several issues. Well, firstly, again... They, they drain resources from the public system. And historically, the private for-profit clinics will take patients who 
are, are less complex, um, leaving more complex patients for the public system, which again, yeah. increases the burden on the public system. We also know that the, the patient outcomes in the, in the for-profit clinics are worse. We look at studies from the US and the UK that showed increased mortality, morbidity in the for-profit system. And even mm. again, looking at Ontario, who can who can forget the in, in the first and second COVID waves, the the long term care homes, the for profit long term care homes had significantly worse COVID infections yeah. and deaths uh, because they had uh, they had didn't have the proper staffing ratios, they didn't have the proper filtration systems um, because they the the priority of the for profit clinics are to turn a profit or to their, okay. their shareholders and secondly to the patient. Let me play another clip here for it. Speaking to Dr. Bernard Ho, Canadian Doctors for Medicare. This is Dr. Brian Day, champion of private health care options in Canada. You have debated him on the show here in the past. And I was speaking to him recently, played a clip of federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh criticizing private health care. And this was his reaction to that. I want to get your thoughts on this. Dr. Brian Day, listen to this. Jagmeet Singh went to one of the most expensive private schools in North America. And, uh, you know, does anyone suggest that, that those that independent schools and private schools across Canada should be closed down? It's a ludicrous situation. What do you think of that argument that we're all basically a bunch of hypocrites here because there's lots of other private options in education, you know, and people will go to a, a swanky private school. You're not talking about shutting down private schools. Do you see any, is that a legit correlation i mean i think we're comparing apples to oranges here and, and as, as dr day knows we've discussed this and debated this at the bc supreme court and the bc court of appeal and, and both of those courts have sided with the public health care system and so really this this debate has been done over and over and over again and we, the public health care system has always come out uh, victorious because we know that the the health outcomes though the wait times the the effectiveness and the cost effective cost effectiveness is better in the public system okay bernard thank you for your time today i appreciate it thank you so much mike thanks for having me families have a lot going on let ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Talk inflated food prices at the grocery store now. Is it greedflation by the big grocery chains? Everyone has experienced this now. You go to the grocery store, you get to that checkout, and you're like, what the heck? What, $80? I got one bag of groceries here. What's going on? Everyone has experienced these high grocery store prices. Now, who dealt this mess? What What is the cause of this? Well, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing that goes around and explanations uh global supply chain disruptions extreme weather events high gas and electricity prices weak canadian dollar versus the u.s dollar these have all been offered as explanations for these high grocery prices the justin trudeau government 
calling big grocery on the carpet in Ottawa, telling those big grocery CEOs, you better lower your prices or we'll, we could do something to you. Maybe we'll raise your taxes. How would you like that? You better lower your prices. The government this week uh, launched an online tool for Canadians to track grocery store prices. It is called the Food Price Data Hub to help Canadians make informed decisions about their food purchases, according to the federal government. The feds also proposing a code of conduct for grocery store chains. Got Mike Von Masso standing by to discuss University of Guelph. First, have a listen to this here now. This is an exchange here between Galen Weston, CEO of the Loblaw Company, one of the big grocery store chains in Canada, being grilled here by NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. Have a listen. We have families that are struggling to buy food for their kids in this country, in a G7 country. And they look at you and they see you making record profits. You're making more money than you've ever made. How much profit is too much profit? We're a big company and the numbers are very large, uh, but it still translates right down to the bottom line at $1 per $25 of groceries. Okay, $1 of profit for every $25 of sales. CEO of Loblaws there. Let's check in with Mike Von Masso now, professor in food, agriculture, and resource economics, University of Guelph. Mike, thanks for coming on again. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Thank you. Hey, Mike, before we get into the code of conduct issue here, when you hear Galen Weston say, testify in Ottawa there that, well, actually our profit margins are, are quite slim. Like he says, if you spend $25 of groceries, $1 of that is profit. So by my math, that's what, about 4%, uh, 4% profit margin. Is he correct? Is that about right? That is about right. If you look at uh, at their uh, financial statements, which are audited and required under uh, under law to be accurate, that 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 is what they're making. And uh, and you know it it compares r- roughly to to what the others are making. It's a little bit more, frankly, than Sobeys. A little bit less than Metro. Uh, but you have to consider their businesses too. Metro has a much higher proportion of of pharmacy business, uh, and so it's it's not always comparing apples to apples. But that five percent is is pretty accurate. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Now I want to ask you about this code of conduct issue because we we're hearing reports now that Loblaw in particular not happy with this code of conduct that's being proposed on the big grocery store chains. Let's have a listen to, again to Galen Weston here. He's the uh, the big head honcho at Loblaw. You're also going to hear Michael Medline here from the Empire Company, another big grocery store chain in Canada. Now here they are denying that they're profiteering here. Let's listen. For those who say grocers are profiteering, the math just doesn't add up. We at Empire are not profiting from inflation. It doesn't matter how many times you say it write it or tweet it. It is simply not true. Okay, so they continue to deny that they're gouging their customers. Mike, let's talk about this new code of conduct that's being proposed. What's going on here? Well, a code of conduct is 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 being proposed. Is the, the government is talking about saying it's sort of a magic bullet for reducing food prices, and and frankly, it's not. What what a code of conduct is is a is a set of rules or guidelines that says uh what we're what grocers are allowed to ask for from 
from retail, uh, from their suppliers. And so if you look, uh, we've heard during COVID, Loblaws came out and said, we're going to charge our suppliers a fee so we can develop our online platform for customers. That's got nothing to do with the individual products. We heard Loblaws also say it in part of that testimony that you played for me uh, was uh, that they've refused to accept price increases from some of their suppliers in the face of uh, in the face of inflation, which uh, which is them leveraging their market power, right? Loblaws is saying we control 25, 26% of the Canadian market. If you want to have access to those customers, you have to meet these requirements. So there are a bunch of different fees and 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 concessions that they're asking for, and a code of conduct is intended to set rules and parameters around which. Uh, that relationship will be uh, will be monitored. Okay, so and now we're already hearing that grocery store chains pushing back against this code of conduct, Mike, and even warning that it could backfire in a big way and actually inflate food prices even higher. So the Canadian press reporting Loblaws saying it's worried the code of conduct could raise food prices by more than one billion dollars. Mike, is this true? Like they're saying, like, don't oh, don't do this code of conduct on it. So it's going to raise prices even higher. Well, I think, and I and I've been arguing since the beginning that a code of conduct is likely to be to to raise prices. Uh, you know, Loblaws is playing the the uh, the game, the numbers game, just like uh, just like uh, the Jagmeet Singh was talking about record prices. Then then. Uh, Weston says, well, it's $1 out of every 25, both yeah. of which are accurate. $1 billion is probably a little bit less than 1%. So it's not insignificant, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not completely outrageous. But I think it's true that we'll see, we're likely to see food price increases with the code of conduct. So if you control what the big grocers can ask their suppliers for, Yep. right? Fees and those sorts of things. You're taking money off the bottom line of these grocers. If you take money off the gro- bottom line of these grocers, two things can happen. The first is they can swallow hard and just accept it and say our profits are going down, or yeah. they can pass the that loss on to consumers, right? There's two sides. They have their yeah. cost side and their revenue side. And so my guess is that it'll be some combination of the two. If you if you uh, if you look bigger, the bigger players are the ones who are complaining most vociferously. In in in, in fact, the Sobe CEO said we're not doing a whole bunch of those things. We don't think it'll affect us. And so, if Sobe's is not affected a whole bunch, they're not going to feel pressure to increase their prices. In fact, they might keep their prices the same and and to to try and get some. Mm to put some pressure on Loblaws. Loblaws is going to say we've lost some we've lost some advantages because of the code of conduct. We're going to try and push prices up. So yeah. the amount that they go up will depend on how their competitors respond and how much everyone else is affected by the code of conduct. Yeah. Speaking of Mike Vaughn, Massau University of Guelph talking inflated food prices. Is it greed deflation by the grocery store chains? Of course, they, they deny it. Justin Trudeau, Mike, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this because Trudeau 
has called these grocery store CEOs on the carpet in Ottawa, and he told them, you better lower your prices or we could punish you with tax hikes. And, and I'm trying to figure out how, how this pretzel logic would work. How would that lower prices if you raise taxes on these grocery stores? Let's listen to him here. So here's Justin Trudeau, then I'll get your thoughts. Let me be very clear. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures. Mike, does this make any sense that you tell a company you better lower your prices if you don't, we're going to hit you with punitive taxes? Wouldn't that raise prices even higher? Well, that's exactly right. What they're hoping is that that the threat uh, prevents it. This is, Mike, frankly, this is political theater. Uh, there's no evidence that the grocery stores are contributing. If you if you look again at their at their annual reports, which I did, in fact, Sobey's margins actually came down a little bit in 2022, which was the year that we had the big food price inflation, which might suggest that they actually absorbed or pre- prevented some. Loblaws went up, and I would argue that they couldn't take price increases if Sobeys didn't. And what happened there was they squeezed their suppliers. So can grocers uh, have an impact on food prices? Maybe, but not likely very much. And I think what's happening is the federal government is saying, we're getting a lot of pressure here uh, about affordability. Uh, it's uh, our, We're down in the polls. It's easy for us to point it somewhere else. And, and frankly, it, it's not going to deliver results. Yeah, I think there's a lot of politics going on. Mike, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts and analysis. I appreciate it. Uh, anytime. Have a great day. Okay, here we go now with the viral video of Brielle Acero. Now, she is 21 years old. She lives in New Jersey, and she is a recent college graduate just started her first full-time job and it has been a shock to her system she posted a video online talking about the stress she has experienced from her first job this video has gone absolutely viral online everyone talking about it it has been viewed millions and millions of times this is the strange world we live in that a young person who's completely anonymous posts a one-minute-long video, and suddenly tens of millions of people are talking about her. But that, that that's the reality of it. And the reaction to this video has been very, very interesting and divided because there are some people who have no sympathy for her and people and some people who have lots of sympathy for her. We've got Kyla Lee standing by to discuss. But let's listen to it here now. So this is Brielle Acero, uh, 21 years old, talking about her first job. Let's listen. This is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college and I'm in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now. So that's off the table. Like if I was able to walk to work and it w- it'd be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me like I leave here, like I get on the train at 730 and I don't get home till like 615 earliest. And then like I don't have time to do anything. I don't I want to shower eat my dinner and go to sleep i don't have time or energy to cook my dinner either like i don't have energy to work out like that's out the window like i'm so upset oh my god 
had nothing to do with my job at all but just like the nine to five schedule in general is crazy being in the office nine to five like if it was remote you get off at five and you're home and everything's fine but like i'm not home it takes me long to get home and like like people that drive to the office like it doesn't you don't get off at five and i know it could be worse i know i could be working longer but like i literally get off it's pitch black like i don't have energy how do you have friends like how do you have time to like meet like a guy i don't know like how do you have time for like dating like i don't have time for anything and i'm like so stressed out okay that's the video that has everyone talking here now and it's been a divided reaction. Now, some people will say that no sympathy for her. And, they, they, you know, there's been people who have been very critical of her, saying, oh, she's just a pampered, privileged Gen Z slacker. Other people, though, say, hang on, you know what that was there? That was an, a young woman working hard at a first job who's expressing some honest and raw emotion about what she's feeling about a job that, that grinds her down, which I think a lot of people feel in, in their work life. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Kyla Lee. Kyla is a lawyer, Acumen Law, and I'm very pleased she could join us on this. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, Kyla, it's great to have you on this to talk about this now because it's great to get a young person's perspective on it too. So let me ask you, what did you think of that? What went through your mind when you watched that? I mean, my initial reaction was probably a, a lot of what people have been saying, which is that, you know, this is a little bit silly. It's it's the reality of life. You have to commute to work. You have to go to work. But then I thought about it more and I thought, you know what, like, this is not, this is not fair. What life is like now for young people entering the job market is so much more hopeless than it was for people, you know, from older generations for uh, Gen X and boomers. And, you know, even myself as a millennial, like you could enter the job market and maybe you had to commute for a while because you couldn't afford to live in the city, but you started to get ahead. You started to make money. You were able to afford to move to a nicer place. You were able to save up for a down payment for a home. And all of that is out of reach for people now. Yeah, and she touched on that in the video because there were a couple of things that jumped out at me and that was one of them where she talked about she has to commute by train into this job and she mentioned that, you know, I'm not going to be able to buy a home in the city as she described. I, I, I Maybe she's working in New York City. It sounds like if she's living in New Jersey. So, you know, a, a lot of young people are in that situation. You can't afford a home. You can't. Aff- what young person can afford to buy a home in Vancouver? Your thoughts? Uh, I I don't know anybody who could afford to buy a home in Vancouver, myself included. Um, you know, and 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 so the result is that young people are being pushed into um, surrounding suburbs or even into other cities and commuting for hours sometimes just to get to work, uh, just to earn you know slightly above minimum wage. It's difficult for employers to pay a, a living wage because of the cost of running a business, especially a business that's in the city. A lot of employers also want to keep as much profit for themselves so they aren't paying living wages so people end up in this situation where even though they're working as hard as they can and putting in most of their life into both getting to work and being at work they're not getting ahead they're still staying behind and falling further and further behind okay now on the other side she is getting a a lot of flack and criticism right from people who are saying like oh my god this is this is over the top this shows you how out of touch some of these young people are this privileged, pampered person who, who can't handle a, a basic nine-to-five job, and now she's crying into into a camera. Now, she said in the video, Kyla, she gets on her train to go to work at 7.30 in the morning, okay? So, I mean, 
And then she said she gets back home at 6.15. Now, mm-hmm. that's a long day, for sure. It's essentially but, an 11-hour day. Well, yeah, but a lot of that is commute, clearly. And she's working 9 to 5, she said. I mean, isn't that just re- basic reality for millions of people? And it's, so can you understand how some people would listen to that and say, are you kidding me? Like, this is what I've been work- This is what I've been doing all my life. Well, I mean, it's also what I've been doing my entire career yeah. as a lawyer. I work those hours and, and you know, I can understand. But, you know, I choose to work those hours and I structure my yeah. life in a way where, where I do that. She is, from the video, it seems like in a position where she doesn't really have a lot of choice in the matter. And that's the concerning factor. It's, you know, if you want to be somebody who puts in those hours and, and enjoys that or, or that fulfills whatever ultimate goal you have, great. But some people want to work to live and not live to work. And I think Mm. that's the distinction that we fail to recognize. And we ended up getting ourselves into this sort of like hamster wheel culture now where the grind is meant to be this really, you know, beneficial, celebrated thing. But it does wear down on the mental health of people, as we can see in this video. Yeah, and she, by the way, has given some public interviews since this video went viral, and she has expressed concern that, you know, she's getting a lot of criticism online from people who think mm-hmm. that she's this privileged, pampered person who's a slacker or whatever, and she thinks it it's unfair. But another thing that jumped out at me when she described that she has to be physically in this office where she works. She cannot work remotely. And that occurred to me that, you know, she's 21 years old, Okay, so she has lived through, she became an adult during COVID, basically, when a lot of people transitioned to working remote, remote hours, work at home, right? Work at home remotely. And you heard her say there, if I could have done, if I could do that, if I could work remotely at home, it would be a lot better. And I I think a lot of people probably feel that way. But I wonder if this is kind of a COVID hangover we have here now that a lot of young people maybe were gotten kind of accustomed to working at home. Your thoughts? Well, I'm of two minds about it. I mean, I'm I'm a, a work at the office, and our business is is depends on people being in the office because we often have to respond to sort of emergency situations that require us to jump in our cars and go to court or or yeah. uh, file documents really quickly. So there are businesses that can't function remotely, and and people need to come in. Um, but at the same time, I think employers have to recognize that we have a huge faction of the market of employees right now who are accustomed to this. And if you want productive employees, you need to have happy employees. And if you want happy employees, if you're able to, you should be adjusting your business to allow some remote work. And maybe it doesn't have to be, um, you know, every day is in the office. A lot of businesses after COVID recognizing this transition to some remote days, some in office days, uh, a lot of businesses also transition to things like a four day work week where people had less time that they had to do the commute, they had to do the rat race, and they could end up still accomplishing the same amount of work. And studies that have looked at these models have actually shown that employees who work four-day work weeks are more productive in the four days than they would be over Mm. five days of more stressful work. I get on the train at 7.30 and I don't get home till like 6.15 earliest. And then like, I don't have time to do anything. The nine to five schedule in general is crazy. I don't have energy to work out. Like that's out the window. Like I'm so upset. Oh my God. Okay. That's Brielle Lucero 
21 years old. Her viral video about her first 9-to-5 job. Kyla Lee is my guest. Lots of phone calls. Mike in Surrey. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. I think I did that 9-to-5 job she's talking about for 40 years working in Richmond before I retired. I'd be embarrassed if she was my daughter, but I I was going to say, Mike, that really it's free will for her. She can do whatever she wants. If she wants to work four hours a day, she can work four hours a day. If she wants to work from home, she can work from home, but she's got to find those jobs. You can't just uh, ask your employer to change all the rules. She has to be productive. So... In this case, she's not even being productive. If uh, why well, okay, if why would, would you why why would you be embarrassed if she was your daughter? Well, because I have two daughters and they work really hard and they they went to university and they got jobs because they wanted to have a house in the Lower Mainland and they wanted to have uh, good jobs and they drive. One's a teacher, drives all the way to New West, fights the Petulo Bridge every day, comes home late, works works at night. That's what they do. She's not whining yeah. that that she has to go and do this. She that's the price you pay to be a, a contributing member of society, you know. And, yeah. and when these kids don't do that, and they whine and say, "Oh, I got to go in, at, at, I got to get on the train at seven thirty or, or whatever she does, and then gets home at six fifteen. For most of us that worked, uh, particularly boomers and maybe the group after, that's what we did. We just did. Yep. You had to sure. do it. There's no, yep. there's no getting around. We, we would never dare go to our employer and say, "If we can't take the uh, time, we want a four day work week. We would like to work from home." I would have been fired in about an hour, and if my employees would have come to that and asked me for that, I may have fired them too. So uh, I think she's okay. just uh, she's whining, and it really, you know, it really it really upsets me because because there are kids out there her age that are working really hard, trying to make a living, doing what they got to do, and you know what? Those are the kids that are going to be paying for her when she's sitting at home mm. doing nothing. So, okay, Mike. Th- thank you for the call, Kyla. Your thoughts. I don't think anybody is saying that this young woman is not working hard. I mean, there's no suggestion in the video that she's not putting in a full day's work. I, I think it's unfair to say that she's she's whining and complaining and not working hard when you know nothing about her work ethic, but she's complaining about conditions that are completely outside of her control and a situation that we've let spiral to the point that it, it is causing young mm. people, not just her, to go online and shed tears about this. Yeah. Taryn in Surrey. Hi, Taryn. Go ahead. Hi. How are you? Okay. I'm 41 years old. I've worked the same, you know, I've done that whole nine to five my whole life. But I think as we need to just take a step back and remember and look at these kids now. They live in a Tinder generation where when something's not going their way, they swipe right. And I think now all these kids have, you know, they're getting into jobs now where they realize that, oh my God, like this is real life. I can't just swipe on to the next one. I think we need to give them a little bit. I do think we need to give them a break. We've done this, social media, all this. And they're also watching people every day with these influencers and people that are able to just work from home and miraculously buy houses and cars and have all. It's constantly in their face. It's constantly thrown in their face. So I think when the reality of, oh my God, this is a job I have to go to every day to be able to buy things, to eat, to buy a house, all these things. It, I think it is shocking, and I, I, I don't think we can pick apart because I have to agree. We don't know her work ethic, and you know what? Mm-hmm. Kudos to her that she has a 9-to-5, and she is going every day because there's lots of people that aren't. There's lots of people that are my age that won't do a 9-to-5. Yeah. So I think we need to give her a break. I, I just think, you know what? We've, we've done this ourselves, social media and all that kind of stuff. We've done this to our own children. That, that's kind yeah. of how I feel. 
Thank you, Taryn, for a great call. I think you raised some great points, and it is a kind of a different reality for young people now. I, I agree with that with you on that. Peter and Burnaby. Hi, Peter. What do you think? Hey, Mike. Yeah, I agree. We've created this for ourselves, but I, I don't want to look at this individual because I don't know her and I don't want to judge her, but I do need to look at a bigger picture as a citizen. Productivity in our world is critical, and it, yes, balance is also critical. The ability to live and, and to have a balanced life-work re, uh, relationship with yourself is important. But we cannot put ourselves in a position where we have allowed rigor to be lost. And I think yeah. overgeneralizing that this is, you know, this is our plight now is a concern to me. We, we have a next generation that's coming. I think it's incumbent on society to set a standard for Yes, balance, but also the idea that you've got to be able to deal with some rigor. And so yeah. teaching, teaching to balance of life, uh, organization skills, teaching to the balance of enjoying life, but also that need to get out and be productive, I think is a key part of what we do in the future. Thank you, Peter. Well, we got a ton of great calls here. Alex in New West. Alex, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not questioning her work ethic. I don't know her work ethic is, but I thought, yeah, she's a whiner. Like, I was a transit operator, and if I wanted a straight eight-hour shift, I had to get up very early in the morning or work very late at night. The rest of the shifts, they were split, so my day was quite often 14 hours, and going from New West to the North Shore, I'd give myself an hour. If I started at 10 in the morning, I'd give myself an hour and a half to deal with Highway 1 to get to the North Shore. Yeah. So... Yeah. yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people have been there. Thank you, Alex. A lot of people who are reacting to it are are comparing it to what they've gone through in their own lives, and uh, saying, "Hey, welcome to reality." Tons of great calls still coming in. Kyla, we'll just have to have you back on this one. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.